and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys, welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And today we're sitting on the Lady Alaska in beautiful St. Paul, Alaska. We have Captain Scott Campbell. Most people don't know him by Scott Campbell. Everybody just calls him Junior. How are you doing today, Junior? I'm doing great. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. Well, you're on a busy schedule. and uh, <laughs> um, So let's just start at the beginning, Scott, or Junior. Uh, where were you born and what brought you into the industry? So I was born in Walla Walla, Washington in 1974. My dad started his fishing career in 1974 about a Kodiak. Uh, he was start came up uh, started working for my uncle, uh, his older brother uh, in the shrimp fisheries. This is uh, you know some of the guys were crab fishing back then, some guys were shrimp fishing back then, and at the time my my dad came up and was working on a shrimp boat, and so we moved up to Kodiak in '78, and we were there through the king crab boom until it crashed in 1983. Then we moved back down to Walla Walla, Washington. My dad bought a farm and became a farmer slash fisherman. The two worst occupations to ever be in for the simple fact, no matter how good you are of a farmer or how good you are of a fisherman, Mother Nature can destroy you every time. Either way. Either way. Didn't matter. He had a double-edged sword and he was getting jabbed on both ends. About the time that uh, he got into the farming, uh, they had some severe weather. They lost several crops and he was actually fishing to support his farming habit. But at that time, the, the fisheries were starting to collapse a little bit as well. So, I mean, he was fishing, uh, you know, six months out of the year. He'd get off the plane, he'd jump on a tractor, and he'd be putting in 18 hours a day in the farm. So, you know, work has kind of been instilled into, into my whole childhood. I had to take care of the farm when Dad was gone. You know, I was eight, nine years old out changing water, you know, digging ditches. I mean, it's just, it's, it's been ingrained into, into my system to, to work since the day I was born, pretty much. So when did you first go to sea? I imagine it was with your dad. Yeah, you know, the, it was funny because, uh, you know, I used to play sports so that I could, I, the real story why I got into sports is because if I was playing sports, I didn't have to work on the farm until at least after I was done with the sports for the day. So it cut out about three, four hours there. So I got into sports pretty heavy. Um, but, you know, on the same, same token, my dad uh, needed me to come up and he wanted me to work, get a work, eth- a work ethic instilled into me at a very young age. So when I was 15 years old, I would get out of school early. I would do all my testing early on the last quarter, and I would come up and finish off the paleo season. So I started crab fishing when I was 15. On your dad's boat? On my dad's boat. I started crab fishing when I was 15 on my dad's boat. Um, and then when I got out of school, when I graduated from high school, my dad's like, hey, I do not want you fishing. I don't want you, I want you to go to college. I want you to, you know, pick a different career. You know, you've got work ethic. You'll be just fine. I didn't want to do anything else but fish. So my first time up that I was actually a true crab fisherman. He brought me up in January, you know, and uh, the weather was miserable. You know, he told the guys, I do not want this kid here. I want him to go to college. You know, just do whatever you got to do. Destroy him. Mentally break him. Do whatever you got to do. Well, about three weeks in, they, they'd done a pretty good job. I was I was ready to quit, but I wasn't going to give my dad the satisfaction of quitting, so I decided to tough it out for three months. We finished off the paleo season, and I remember I was like 19 years old, and I had a $30,000 check, and I thought I was rich, man. Thirty grand is like all the money in the world, man. Thirty grand, I'm 19, yeah. 
So I get home and I got sick. I got home on a Friday and my, my I was just newly married. And my wife says, oh, we need to get, because she was a nurse at the time going through nursing school. We need to get health insurance. I'm like, I just got home. We'll do it Monday. Saturday, I had appendicitis attack. Sunday, I had to have surgery. Monday, I got a $33,000 bill for the surgery. My $30,000 check went real quick. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so then all of a sudden, I realized my hands really didn't hurt that bad. It wasn't that tough. I was able to suffer through the first season. I came back fishing, and then I, you know, my career started from there. You know, my dad knew he couldn't get you. My dad, my dad knew he couldn't break me at that point. So he said, "Well, we might as well teach this kid how to work." I always ask everybody, you know, what did you do with that first big check you got? And it's always a car. Yeah. You know, it's a truck. It's some extravagant vacation, and you had an appendicitis. Yeah, I, I had to pay medical bills with and, and my still first ended big up check. Three grand. Oh, I was three grand in the hole, and then plus I had to pay taxes too. So I was really in the hole. You know, it was, yeah. it was horrible. But yeah, that was my first crabbing experience uh, coming out into the Bering Sea. Uh, you know, as a full-time fisherman, was 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 a horrible experience. I never wanted to do it again, and then I lost all my money to appendicitis attack, so I had to come back. And you know, my plan was is just to fish one more season so that I could you know get that money back, so I could put put it down on a house and then go to college. And it just never materialized. I I, I got the bug, and I just I like that quick cash, and I like to be able to go home and just take a break and not have to do anything. And the lifestyle just it just it just got ingrained in my system. So before we move too far along, I'd like to know, you, you talked about 19, your dad wanted you busted, and these guys worked at it. What were some of the things that were going on that they were they were doing to you? So a lot of the things that they would do, like, you know, with greenhorns nowadays, you, you try and make their life, you try and pass on all the tricks of the trade, you know, like, hey, you come in after a string, turn your gloves inside out. You know, get starting with dry gloves, dry clothes, you know, eating food, you know, doing all the little things that give you the energy and being warm and stuff like that. I'd be up sitting in the forepeak. I was told that if I couldn't come back across the stack unless I had a buddy with me. And so my buddy would never wait for me. I'd have to do bait on my own, and I could never keep up because I was greenhorn. Greenhorns can never keep up on bait. So on a five-mile run, I might be three miles in and have two miles where I could come in and change. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't have anybody that I could you come across the stack with. I didn't have my buddy. So I'd be sitting up forward, and I'd throw my gloves off, and they'd be down on the forepeak. They'd be washing around in water. I had wet gloves all the time. I was in wet clothes. Every now and then they'd bring me out a, you know, a sandwich or something. But for the most part, you know, I just I wasn't eating. I was in wet clothes all day. I wasn't taking care of my hands, and, and it just I mean I was I was miserable out there. I was seasick. I was puking all the time. You were living you know, they, in the forepeak. Yeah, <laughs> I was living in the forepeak, and I get to come back on my sleep rotation. That was the only time I get to come back, and. And they would just, they would make everything hard on me. They'd whip me in the back of the legs with the door tie if I took too long getting the bait in and out of the pots. They dropped doors on my head, you know, just because I was I was too slow and I was slowing down the operation. So they'd say, five seconds, doors coming down, and I'd just be backing out and hit me on top of the head. And I mean, it was, it was miserable. I mean, it was a different time back then, you know. Back then in the open access fisheries, time was money. And if you were wasting their time, you were wasting their money. On your, back then, uh, what was the sleep rotation like? So back then, what you would do is we'd add six guys on deck, and or six guy or six crew rotation, and we'd have five guys on deck. So it was supposed to be 20 hours on, four hours off. And that four hours, you get three hours and 40 minutes, and give you 20 minutes to get up, get your you know your stuff on, and be back out on deck. But those rotations never worked. It was more like 32 hours because. 
something would happen. You'd have to have everybody out on deck, and then you know, then you'd start the rotation again. So it was more like thirty-two and three. Okay. <laughs> so it was pretty brutal. I mean, when you're nineteen years old and going, you know, used to sleeping six, eight hours a day, and you go to three hours of sleep every thirty-two hours, and then you're hurting. Your hands are hurting. So at three hours, you're not really sleeping. You're just resting. It was, it was the most mentally challenged thing I've ever done in my life. And so. How long were the seasons then? Back then, the seasons were three to six months for snow crab, uh, the paleo crab, and then you would uh, go tendering in the summer. Usually, you get the boat back around May. You would uh, do a little quick shipyard, paint it up, do some maintenance on it. You'd go tendering all summer long. As soon as you were done with that, you'd beeline up to St. Matthews and do a blue crab fishery, which was kind of your your warm up for a red king fishery. So it was a blue king crab fishery. And that was usually just a couple of weeks. Nice weather in September. Kind of get you broke back into the fall there. And after red king crab, then you go into a tanner crab fishery and fish till November. So really you got December off. That was that was your time off. I mean, you're fishing 10, 11 months out of the year. Yeah. Quite a toll on you at 19 years. Oh old. yeah, 19 years old. That was that was brutal. You know, you just wanted to take a break, get home, go and enjoy being home, and and you were the new guy on the dock and or the new guy on the boat. So anytime somebody wanted to take time off, you were the first guy to get the call. And you, if you said no, there was another new guy oh, on the dock spot. ready to replace you. Even even though you were working on your dad's boat. Even though I was working on my dad's boat, I I didn't get my dad made it harder for me than he made it for anybody else. Any other green horn he would have gave, you know, gave him a little slack, let him have some time off. But me, he was twice as hard because he never wanted me in the fishery. We can, we can see that from your first uh, <laughs> your first time out uh, as a full yeah. share crewman. So um, what, what about going back then the second time? Things got easier? You, you know, what you were in for? Honestly, you mentally were kind of prepared. You knew what you were going to be in for. And then it's, it's so funny because when you do something the first time, it never makes sense. You're doing everything the hard way. You take a little break from it. You come back. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I see how those guys are tying up the buoys. I see why they're doing it. That's an easier way. So you start to adapt. And then your body's kind of tuned in and knows, okay, well, we're going to have hell to pay here for the first two weeks. And then you're going to get over your aches and pains. And you start to be, uh, become accustomed to the work is the best way to put it. Being able to keep up with your buddy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I made sure that on that second season, I never fell behind on bait. So when everybody was going back, I was going back with them. All right. All right. How long did you have to do bait and then move on to the next spot? Uh, you know, it took me quite a while because, you know, all the guys that were on the boat, uh, they've been on the boat for like seven, eight years. So, I mean, basically somebody had to quit or not show up for you to get be able to move up back then. Mm -hmm. So I was, on, I was on the bait rotation for about a year, you know, a year, year and a half. And we had a guy that didn't show up. So I got thrown into a position that I wasn't ready for, a full share position, but I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity because if they would have brought another full share in, I'd probably still be a bait boy on that boat. <laughs> Which boat was it? It was uh, Arctic Lady. Arctic Lady. Yep, Arctic Lady was the first so boat I ever worked on. that's your first commercial. Yeah, that was the first commercial boat I ever worked on. She's still running around. Oh, yeah, the Arctic Lady's still around. That thing's still a Highliner of the fleet. It was a Highliner back then, and it's still a Highliner today. Okay. And then uh, what boat did you move on? Well, let's talk about your progression. So then you went up to a full crew share guy. Yeah, so I went to a full crew share uh, boat, or I went to a full crew share guy on the Arctic Lady, but I knew I was kind of limited. I, there was so many guys in front of me, I knew I was never going to get an opportunity to advance. You know, I was, I was still low man on the totem pole, even though I was full share. So I, ma I made a conscious decision to make a move over to the Lady Alaska. And when I moved over to the Lady Alaska, we're Absolutely. sitting on the we're Lady Alaska. We're sitting on the Lady Alaska. Okay. Now there's right. a story behind that too. We'll All get right. to that. 
So anyway, I move over to Lady Alaska. I worked for a guy by the name of Bill Whiting, and uh, he'd owned other boats, and he was running this boat at the time. Was, I never really understood why he never ran his own boats. He'd always run somebody else's boat. Uh, and anyway, he was out brown crab fishing. So I jumped into the brown crab fishery out the Lucian chain, went out and learned how to long line crab pots, um, worked for him. He was impressed with my work ethic that my dad had instilled in me. And he says, hey, I've got this uh, boat called the Amatuli. I'd like you to go run it for a cod fishery if, if you're interested. And of course, first thing I say is yes, of course I'm, I'm, I'm ready, you know. So I call my dad up, I was so excited. I'm like, dad, dad. Bill's going to give me an opportunity to run the the uh, Amatuli. I says, what do you think about that? You know, I thought I was going to have support from my dad. And he just, he tells me, he says, you're not ready, and hung up the phone. And how old were you? I was uh, 24 at the time. 24. He tells me, you're not ready, and hung up the phone. He says, you got no business running a boat. You're not ready. So that was pretty deflating for me. But I found out years later that he was doing that because he knew if he told me that, it would challenge me to make me prove him wrong. So, you know, he was doing a little psychological mind Sounds game. Sounds like me. that first season. Of crap, <laughs> yeah, it was like my first season being a greenhorn. You know, yeah. he knew if he kind of beat me down a little bit, I was going to do everything in my power to prove my father wrong. And did uh, you? You know, the first season, I I will admit I was not ready. I, I, I did not do all that well. You know, I got, got you know, all the crew back safe. We uh, had a mediocre season. I learned a lot. But then that next year... Um, I did a little bit better and then a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better and started working my way up and then guys heard about how well I was doing and then I got opportunities to run better boats so my better very boats in the Amatuli better boats in the Amatuli the Amatuli was pretty run down when I got it I mean it was a it was a beautiful boat back in the 70s and 80s it was the pride of the fleet but it, it the maintenance had been let go for by the time I got onto it in the late 90s it was pretty run down uh, my first season out uh, crab fishing with that thing uh, I took it out. We were going out. We had uh, a three-week strike. I'd taken a load out to St. Paul because it was a small boat, so I had to take two loads of gear out. This is an open-access fishery. The strike comes. The ice is moving down. Uh, the owner's calling me up. Hey, where do you got the gear? And I says, I got it at St. Paul. He says, hey, you need to get that gear and get it moved down to St. George because the ice is going to cover it up before the strike settles. We take off. We go up to, to get the gear moved and uh, we lost our, our air compressor and our throttles that control the boat to give it power are pneumatic so they rely on air pressure the air pressure dropped down the boat got sideways in the trough it was 26 foot wide more than 30 foot sea so you can imagine it was pretty violent i just got down into the engine room to figure out what was going on because I, I just knew i'd lost power i didn't know if it was the engines if it was fuel if it was air what it was and we took a wave on the side of the boat that laid the boat pretty much on its side. I went flying through the engine room and I fell on top of the air compressor. Well, I quickly found out what my problem was because the air compressor motor, the bolts had, were so rusted up, they they broke free and the motor had slid where it couldn't catch the pulley. Well, when I fell on top of the pulley, it pushed the belt down, which pushed the motor out and the air compressor caught. But the problem with that was, is my finger got ran through the pulley and it tore my oh, finger off. If you guys can see this right now, Junior's holding his right hand up and he's missing his, uh, whatever finger that is. That's my ring finger. Yeah, the ring finger. It just spun the, the tip of the finger right off. So I knew what my problem was. I knew I you still... had two problems. <laughs> I had two problems. I had a boat that didn't have power and I had a finger that was missing. Right. So first thing, get the boat under power. So I figured out what's going on. I got the motor tightened up. We got the air pressure back. We got the mains back up and running. 
I come up, I tell the crew, I says, hey, we got a slight problem. Hold up my hand, they're freaking out. Oh my God, we got to go back to Dutch. I'm this like, isn't it. <laughs> this is, I, I'm like, hey, we're, we're, we're 20 hours from Dutch Harbor, maybe 25 hours. We're four hours from the gear. We're going to go up, we're going to get the gear, we're going to move it down to safety. Then we'll go in and I'll get medical attention. I knew they couldn't save my finger. If you can't get that finger on in eight hours, it's not even worth your time. So I knew the finger was gone. It wasn't even worth it. But the crew's like, oh, you're in shock, you're in shock. And I'm like, no, I'm the captain. I'm not in shock. I'm being logical. we got to get this gear moved. If we don't have gear, we can't haul crab pots. So we go up, we get the gear moved, get it moved down to St. George. In the meantime, the strike had settled. So as I'm going down to get medical attention and the rest of the fleet's coming out to start fishing, there was no way for me to get another captain in to relieve me. So my crew that had been up there for a month beforehand, they'd been on strike for three weeks, so they're seven weeks in. Now, if their captain goes home, they're not going to make any money. So we get in the clinic. The doctor's like, hey, we got to get you out. you got to get on antibiotics. We, you got to go home. you got to rest. And I says, so the reality is, is I'm going to go home, sit on my couch for three weeks while my finger heals, or I can sit in the captain's chair for three weeks, and I can let it heal right there. And he says, no, I can't advise that. So I went out against doctor orders. I, had, I told him, I said, listen, it's going to be a 10 to 18 day season, no big deal. You know, give me antibiotics for 20 days. And he gave me antibiotics for 20 days. It ended up being like a 28 or 38 day season. So I ran out of antibiotics, got a staph infection in my hand. I got super sick. I was so sick I had to tape my hands to the throttles just so I could operate the boat. The season finally closes, uh, I think it was 8 or 10 days after I ran out of antibiotics. We get into Dutch. I go in. They immediately life flight me out because I, I mean, I had the streaks running up my arm. I mean, I was, I was, I was about ready to get, you know, the staph infection. It was in my bones. The staph infection was in my bones. It was working its way to my heart. They got me out to the uh, uh, Anchorage. I had surgery on my finger. Uh, they couldn't, they couldn't get it under control. Um, so they went in back in for another surgery. And on the third surgery, they came in and said, "Hey, look, we got to take the hand. If we don't take the hand, you're going to die." We, we cannot get the staph infection under control. And I said, man, you take my hand, I can never work again. Don't, uh, you know, and I, was, I, I wasn't thinking in the right state of mind. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, chop the hand, save the life. You know, yeah. now I can look back and say that was the dumbest thing I ever did. They, so the doctor, he conferred with another colleague, and he says, we're going to try one more thing when we got you under. If that doesn't work, we're taking the hand. So what he ended up doing is you can see the scar right there, right at the base of the ring finger. They... They cut me open right there, and they shoved the IV pick right into the bone. So it was just, it was back basically back flushing through the bone, through, you know, the, the tip of the bone and everything, and through all the, the, the tendons and stuff. And then they took my hand, and they kind of pressed it like, you know, you're cutting off the circulation to your wrist, you know, putting your, your hand towards your, your uh, forearm, but just enough where it would still have enough blood supply. It wouldn't kill the hand, but... In, but it would help slow the blood going through my, my, the rest of my body, and it worked. So when I come out of surgery, I, all I see is this big bandage, and where my hand should be isn't anymore. Yeah. So I start tearing at the thing, and my wife's like, no, 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 don't touch it, don't touch it. It's there, it's there. And I tore down until I could see a fingertip. And when I seen a fingertip, I stopped. And, uh, you know, after that, you know, I kind of got healed up. Word got around that, hey, this kid, you know, he'll do anything out there to stay fishing. Guy called me up. He had a brand new boat and says, hey, I want you to come run my boat. And it was the Vixen. It was uh, Mike Wall. And I says, he says, Mike, I don't have that much experience, dude. And he's like, dude, I heard what you did. He says, I don't need you to have experience. You're not going to quit on me. 
so I went and ran the Vixen for two, three years, uh, and then my dad came back to me, and the fisheries had got really small by then, and my there wasn't enough work. My dad and my uncle were going around the clock on the on the Arctic Lady, and there just wasn't enough work for both of them to, to be on the boat. So my dad decided he wanted to go buy a boat and kind of start his own operation. But by then, he was at an age where he's like, you know, I can't really do this on my own. I'm really trying to get out of the fishery. So we, he called me up and we decided to tag team up. We bought the Seabrook, I think in 1999 or 2000, don't quote me on which year that was. My dad bought in first, I bought in a year later, because uh, I, you know, I had to you know, get a little bit of money put together. Times were pretty tough back then, you know, I was making 50, 60 grand as a captain. You know, we were fishing eight, 10 day you know, uh, seasons by that point. You know, the boats were tied up most of the time. It, it was pretty lean times, but it was an opportunity. You know, we knew that the Seabrook was a good opportunity for us to get ownership, and we were somehow able to scratch it together and, uh, you know, buy the boat, um, and then we started entering in this cod fishery. It's a, so we use our crab pots, but we put these plastic fingers in. The fingers open up, the fish swim in, fingers close, the fish can't get out. So with these crab fisheries being so short, uh, you know, the cod fishery was an alternative for us to make some, some money and have something to do with the boat. So we got pretty serious about it and we actually started getting pretty good at it. And we got really, really good at it over the years and, and kind of became the top cod boat uh, for, for a number of years. You know, we were always in the top 5%. Um, and we kind of got a reputation that, hey, you can make some money in cod. Um, and then, you know, as things progressed, you know, uh, we. I think in 2009 or 2010, we were approached by Deadliest Catch. Um, I think 2008 was the first time we told them, no, we're not interested. Then 2009, no, we're not interested. 2010, they called us up again, and I thought, well, you know, we'll give it a try. So we, uh, we jumped on the show in 2010, and I was on for four seasons, and I had a back surgery. My back was giving me a lot of problems I'd had pots dropped on me and I had the blown out disc in my back and then sitting in the chair I got a little soft in the midsection got about 30 40 pounds overweight like most captains do <laughs> um, and uh, you know I started having some very severe back problems and I got to the point where I couldn't walk they lifted me off the boat uh, I went in and uh, I had a back surgery that basically took me out of the fisheries for about five years it took me about five years to, to get it corrected I had two multiple surgeries on my back ended up having to blew a disc in my neck and had to have that replaced as well and I never thought I'd ever be in the fisheries again you know, I never thought I'd be able to come back fishing uh, last year uh, the Seabrook you know we had multiple captains running it over the years and we just couldn't find a producer so the boat just kept getting more neglected more neglected more neglected and it, we just weren't making any money with it uh, I told dad asked me what do you want to do and I said well, you know what at this point let's just sell the boat no desire to you know I can't go up and run it let's just sell the boat so I flew in uh, last uh, August after tendering and I was coming up to just kind of see what we needed to do to fix fix the boat up and I got up there and it was just a bunch of little petty things so I got all, got the boat fixed up and I'm like well the cod season's right around the corner I says yeah I'll go out and I'll do what I can just to try and generate a little bit of revenue we ended up doing very, very well with it. I'm like, oh, hey, I made it through that. Well, King's is king crab season's right here. I might as well just do that. And so I did the king crab fishery, and then, you know, I realized I could do that. And so I kind of slowly started getting back into it over this last year. And the body was holding up? body was holding up, doing pretty well. You know, it was a struggle in the beginning, but, you know, I was able to, I was able to tough it out. And uh, so I decided, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll stick around for a little bit. 
Then the opportunity came for this lady, Alaska. This is a... Uh, your, your second boat ever. My second boat ever. And this is a monster of a boat it's on. You know, it's 138 foot long. It's 32 foot wide. It's one of the biggest boats in the fleet. It's like the Cadillac, you know. I've got the little sports car with the Seabrook. It's a small, nimble, but it's a very active boat. And I remember from working on deck how nice this thing rode and how big it was and spacious. And it was... I guess I just, you know, I've always had boat envy over this boat. When it came for sale and the opportunity was there, I bought the boat just on a, on a whim without really looking it over too well and and uh, and really strategizing whether I wanted to be back in the fisheries or not. But I guess, you know, psych, you know, somewhere down deep in the, in my in my thought process, I wanted to get back into crab fishing. Well, whenever you buy a new boat, you're pretty well committed. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way out. Yeah, there's no way out now. You know, I honestly. You know, I knew that if I bought this boat, I'm at least committed to this uh, fishery for at least seven years. Yeah. You know, it's it's a seven-year commitment to get one of these boats paid back, get it back into shape, and get it operational where it's you can make some money with it. Mm-hmm. So, Junior, let's talk about great great experience all the way up to here. Let's talk about the the scariest time that you've had at sea. <laughs> Funny enough, the scariest time I've ever had at sea was on the Lady Alaska here about a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, I've always, always been in some pretty hairy situations out at sea and never really been nervous because I knew I could get my way through it. Uh, but, you know, I knew the Seabrook liked the back of my hand. If something went wrong, I knew exactly what it was. I knew how to fix it, what it would take to get it fixed, and about how much time. We were coming out with the Lady Alaska, you know, it's rated for 288 pots in icing conditions. So we had 200 pots on. I wanted to give a little cushion because, you know, the boat hasn't been out in a while. 88 pots is a lot of cushion. 88 pots is a lot of cushion until it isn't. And we found out it wasn't. We were coming out for the beginning of a paleo season. Uh, We just lost the Scandies Rose, which is a a big monster boat just like the Lady Alaska. Uh, They got in icing conditions, rolled over, lost five of the seven crew members. Uh, one of them being the captain, Gary Cobham, which I knew very well. He was one of my fishing partners. And his son. And his son. Uh, you know, so that was that was pretty traumatic for us, uh, you know, right at the beginning of the year. And we went out cod fishing, um, you know, and it just kind of weighed on my mind, you know, and I'm trying to you know, get a feel for this boat again because it's been so many years since I've been on it. Um, I was start, kind of starting to feel comfortable that I had everything under control and knowing what was going on. We come in, we uh, made some repairs on the boat, uh, some problems that we'd had with uh, during the cod season, got all those repairs fixed. We're heading out for Apelio, and we find out that there were, had been a repair that we didn't know about, and somebody left an absorbent pad in one of the fuel tanks. Well, that absorbent pad had disintegrated, and there's no way of ever knowing that. There's no way to tell. You can't see in your fuel tanks that had disintegrated and it went through our fuel system and plugged our entire fuel system up for both our mains and our generator killed all three of them within 30 seconds so now we're dark ship I have no power no propulsion and I've got three slack tanks of of water icing conditions with 200 pots on the boat went from about a 10 degree list in about 15 minutes it was to a 25 degree list the starboard rail was underwater we had water going up into the four peak we were back in the engine room trying to get, you know, just trying to get a generator running so we could get the, the tank stabilized and get, get righted up and try and get some lights so we could see. We're working on flashlights, pitch dark in the engine room. 
Uh, we found out what the problem was. We had to tear all the fuel systems apart. We got everything drained out. We got as much of that uh, absorbent pad as we could out. Um, we got a generator up and running, got lights on, got the tanks pressed. That helped a little bit. And then we had to blow some of our crab tanks out so that we could get the boat light and righted back up. Then we got our mains going and then I was able to get into the weather so we were just kind of idling up into the weather. You never want, if you've got a listing situation, you never want to have the weather on the stern because that's where you can breach the boat and the boat will roll over. You always want to be bucking into it. And uh, so we had everybody kind of checking things out. Uh, they went up forward and they're like, the bow's flooded, the bow's flooded. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. Luckily, there was a boat nearby. He had a spare pump. We got our emergency pump going. We were able to get the water out of the bow. But I tell you what, there was that whole entire time I kept my calm for my crew. But in my mind, I was like, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Are we going to be in the same situation as the Scandies Roads? Are we going down? I mean, I could, I could not get the engines fired off. And we just kept getting heavier and heavier because it was so cold. We were already leaning to the starboard from the icing conditions. We were dead in the trough on the starboard side, so every wave that hit us was like an ice magnet. We were just, you could just watch the ice growing on the side of the boat, and we just kept getting heavier and heavier. In your mind, was there, was there a point where you were going to call it? I mean, were you already thinking Mayday, survival suits? You know, yeah, we were, we, I honestly, another 10 minutes and I probably would have called it. You know, I probably would have had to call it and say, hey, we've got to get off this thing. You know, we can't, we've got to get off. Uh, but when I got that main or that generator fired off, uh, it was like just a, the littlest sense of hope. You know, you had that little sense the of life hope. Came okay. back on. Yeah, the lights came back on. There's a sense of hope, sense There's of a relief. Boat close by. Boat close by. We had a boat that was a hundred yards off our side, just standing by. You know, so I knew. Okay, well, we need to try and we need to try and get this problem solved. You know, I got a generator now. I can start my, my pumps up. I can start getting water out of the areas that shouldn't have water in it. I can get my tanks, one of my tanks pressed. I can get the other ones blown out, get us lightened up. And we slowly started writing the boat back up. And we got the boat where it was sitting level again. Once we had the boat sitting level, then I, then I felt calm again. I knew, okay, we can drift in this. It's no problem because the boat's level. Um, and then we, uh, you know, we got our main engines going. We got, you know, we knew what our problem was. We knew how to how to fix it. We we haven't had any more problems with that that absorbent pad plugging up because we only got about half the absorbent pad out of the out of the uh, out of the tank. We don't know if the other half's in there or if it was just a little piece that or was left in there. Yeah, we don't yeah, know if it yeah. dissolved. We have because no you idea. it was in there. It yeah, 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 yeah. So. You can't know what's you can't know what's left. I mean, that's one thing that kind of concerns me a little bit. But you know, I also know now how to correct the problem. You know, we know we've got bypasses set up now for the tank, so if we do plug up, we can plumb directly into the engines at a higher point where we're not going to suck anything in. So we, I can always figure something out. I just need time for to make a solution. And right. at that point in time, I just didn't have the time. I thought, you know, I honestly thought in the back of my mind, oh, boy, this it, could be it. It had to be, it, it had to really... Um Increase the anxiety and the stress knowing the Scandies rose, but just, we're, we're just a couple weeks away from well, a few weeks away from that happening. Oh man, I tell you what, yeah, I mean, three weeks ago, you know, the Scandies rose went down, and you think in the back of your mind, you think that'll never happen to me, and then when it does, it's just like, I mean, it's the most helpless feeling you can ever have in the world. Yeah, okay, well, that was a that was dramatic. So, let's <laughs> let's talk about the best time. Uh, you know, the best time, uh, best times that I've ever had, uh, 
was probably, I think, 2012. We were out fishing. The ice was down, which was kind of a, a bad situation. Uh, and we had we didn't have a whole lot of quota to fish that year. And the ice was coming down. I decided to stay out and fight the ice. Most of the fleet had went home. Well, about the time I got finished up with my crab season, uh, I caught my quota. Boats were starting to come back, and they were panicking. So they, they were calling us up, and they were saying, Hey, I need you to fish a trip of Apelio for me. Oh, yeah, no problem. And it just one left after another and another and another. And, you know, I mean, for the Seabrook, a big season for that seven, eight 800,000 pounds, maybe a million. That year we put in 2.2 million pounds of, of crab. I mean, it was awesome. It was the best year we've yeah, ever you get two had. two and a half years of crab done. Yeah, exactly. You know, we got all, I mean, it was it was what turned our operation around. Because, you know, we'd been doing fairly well, but we never had that big break to get ahead, get the boat fixed up just the way we needed to. New paint job and a new chair. Yeah, new paint job, new chair, new, new you know, new hydraulics, all the stuff that we'd always wanted to do, you know, had on this wish list. At 2012, after we'd finished that season off, we had the money to do it, and we did it. You know, we got that boat cherried. Uh, that was such a neat, neat feeling to, you know, have that, have the ability to just go do all the projects you've ever wanted to do to the boat. Most of the time, you got to schedule and budget, and it's, you know, takes seven years, and something else will go wrong, so that you have to, you know, the luxury things that you've always wanted to do, you can't do, and you have to go do the maintenance thing. So that that was pretty cool. That was one of the neatest experience I had, and the fishing was so it's the boat, good. It's the boat lotto. Yeah, it was. It was a boat lotto for sure. Now, boat so, lotto. So what about? Um, would you change anything? Change anything in the industry or change yeah, no, anything yeah, in... That's in your career. Oh, you know, yeah, you know, uh, everybody always asks me that. Would you do anything different? The reality is, as much as I'd like to say, yes, I would do something different, I couldn't imagine myself doing it any different because I don't think I'd be the person that I was today if I knew what I knew now, but I did it differently. I just, I, I don't think I would. You know, I, I'm a slave driver. You know, you ask anybody... Uh, that's ever worked for me or has wanted to work for me they're like oh you know he's pretty hard to work for you know and it's not that i'm because uh, your dad beat the crap out you of well, you my dad yeah yeah that. you know my dad <laughs> honestly my dad instilled that work ethic into me and if there's something to do we're gonna do it and, and you know a lot of boats there's a lot better fishermen than me let me put it to you that way first off there's a lot of guys that are more talented than me and can catch crab a heck of a lot easier for me, I've always been able to be a producer just because I try and work harder than the next guy. It just, you know, and it's hard. You know, when guys come in for big storms, I'll stay out and I'll work through the storm. You know, I probably shouldn't do that, but it's just, I, for me to be on a competitive level, I've just got to stay working. You know, when guys are working 18 hours, we'll work 20 hours. You know, we always just try and put that little extra effort because, you know, it, there's guys that just naturally can find crab and do things easy and you know i'm jealous of those guys but i know i can compete with them if i just put in a little extra effort and that's what i do you know I, i've never settled i've never been satisfied with just doing okay i've always wanted to be at the top and the only way i can do that is put in the effort put in the time what about advice for young guys trying to get into our industry and into the into the fishery? you know the biggest problem that i see today with young guys trying to get in and it's a generational thing. Nothing against the millennials, but their parents wanted them to have a better life than they had growing up. So they've spoiled these kids, and there's very few of them. They want to make the money, but they don't want to put in the effort. The biggest thing that I can say is don't worry about the money. Just put in the effort, and the money will come. 
and that is so hard to instill in these That could be in any industry. It could be in any industry. It doesn't even have to be the crab fishing industry. Put in the effort, the money will come on the backside. Don't try and get the money, worry about the money. Oh, this guy's making this, this guy's making that. I should be making the same because, you know, I'm doing the same job as him. No, it doesn't work that way, man. you got to put the effort in first. You do, you do. Uh, Junior, before we close up, is there anything else you want to add? You know, uh, not really. You know, it's just kind of one of those things that, uh, you know, if you, if you think you want to be a crab fisherman, don't. If you know you want to be a crab fisherman, you can try. Not saying you're going to be successful. Right. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's tough. a tough industry. It, not only the job, but yeah. the, 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 the temperatures that you're in, the oh. environment. I mean, and you know, the toughest thing about it is a lot of people can do the work, but they can't handle the environment. You know, it's super cold out. Uh, the, there's actually jobs that are tougher than crab fishing, but you're throwing the element of the Bering Sea in. The, you're working on an active platform. So that meant... Burning the energy just trying to stand up is what makes this job so difficult. 40 mile an hour wind. Yeah, 40 mile an hour wind, sideways, sweet, you're wet all the time, you know, you're cold, then that just sucks the energy right out of you. So, you know, if you think you want to be a crab fisherman, don't waste our time. If you know you want to be a crab fisherman, you can give it a try. I'm not saying you're going to make it, but you can at least give it a try. And don't forget to turn your gloves inside out. Yeah, and don't forget to turn your gloves inside out. All right, Junior, well, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, you bet. Today, and, uh, and we wish you luck. You still got a few trips to make. Still got a couple of trips left, and then we'll get this boat back to Kodiak and do some repairs on it and get it ready for the next season. That sounds real good. And uh, I'll be looking forward to my Seabrook hat then. That's right. At the end of today's game. <laughs> no, I think it's going to be the other way around. I think the <laughs> Niners are going to win. Chiefs are going down. By the time, I'm going to be getting the hat. By the time this airs, it'll already be decided. <laughs> I know, right? We'll know. But, uh, yeah. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in again. And Junior, again, thanks for, thanks for doing it. And uh, look for his new merchandise, I'm sure. Ah, uh, yeah, we'll see. Is, this, is, Seabrook, is Seabrook still <laughs> Seabrook's up? still up, yep. Seabrook's still up, and Lady Alaska will have some stuff ready here uh, shortly. So, uh, appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.